Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. We've got a bit of a hidden history this week. We love these. Operation Anthropoid, we know, has gone down in history as one of the most famous acts of resistance during the Second World War and culminated in the assassination of the Nazi protector Heydrich. He was one of the most fearsome and, of course, brutal rulers during the Nazi regime. It was carried out by British-trained Czechoslovakian intelligence and forces in exile and led to some of the most shocking reprisals of the Second World War. But there's a gap in our knowledge here, this hidden history that I want to talk about. How did this relationship between the British and Czechoslovak forces come about? Who was involved? What was their fate? And what other missions were carried out that we just don't know about? Well, it's here that we have George Barefield on the podcast to talk about his remarkable family history. George describes his grandfather, Jaroslav Bublik, and his grandfather's cousin, Josef Bublik, their central role in Czechoslovak intelligence during the Second World War, and he's got all the family documents and all the family history needed to answer these questions that we just don't know the answers to, well, until now. He also reveals a secret mission called Operation Foursquare and its critical importance to Czechoslovakia at the birth of the Cold War. These are amazing new histories. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Hi, George. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing? How's your summer going? Yeah, uh, very well, thanks, James. It's uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Have you been able to get away much this summer? I mean, a lot of us haven't been travelling too far. Have you had a staycation, or what have you been up to? Yeah, succession of staycations. Just been away to a few places. Just been up to see my mum in Skegness, actually, so... You can't get much more staycation than that. Skegness. Oh, Skeg Vegas, as we used to call it <laughs> as kids. I haven't been to Skegness in years. And it was um, Cleethorpes or Mablethorpe at the road. Yeah, yeah, I did all of those. Very nice beach at Mablethorpe. Do my bit for Lincolnshire tourist board. Good fish and chips as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, there you go. Visit the UK, visit Skegness. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the episode. No, we will carry on. We will carry on. The last time we spoke, actually, you told me a little bit about your family history and just enough about your father's role in the Second World War to get me hooked on this incredible story. So I had to get you on the podcast to learn more. We're going to start with the basics so that we're all on the same level here because this story goes back to 1938 and what was then Czechoslovakia. And it was at this point that Bohemia 
and more Avia were occupied by Nazi Germany. And these were both incredibly strategically important territories. I think it was Bismarck who once said, who rules Bohemia rules Europe. And now it's here in reaction to this Nazi occupation that your family kicks in, George. So I'm going to hand over to you. Yeah, thank you, James. So yeah, absolutely. I think the story of Czechoslovakia is a perfect lens. It's a really good vantage point to understand the history of the Second World War. It's where the war began and ended. And I think it's the book Prisoners of Geography that illustrates this pretty well. Czechoslovakia is right in the heart of Europe. Therefore, it's right in the heart of everything that was happening in the Second World War. And my grandfather, Yaroslav Bublik was his name. He was born into the new country of Czechoslovakia, formed of Bohemia, Moravia and Slovakia. So it was that was formed by Thomas Masaryk, who was the founder of Czechoslovakia after the First World War. And it was a really noble project, really. He was a philosophy professor. He was somebody who had a very principled view. And he saw this opportunity at the end of the First World War to create a country modelled on, you know, the sort of best of democratic principles, but also to be socialist with a nod to its geographical position, to be liberal, democratic and socialist. And it was a very modern idea, Czechoslovakia. And so my grandfather was born in 1914. So he grew up really part of this experiment to create you know, a model country in the heart of Europe. So he was from modest, a modest upbringing. His father was a farmer in rural Moravia, but he was brought up to really take pride in education, to take pride in physical endeavours. So he was a member of the Sokol, which was the gymnastics organisation, which all, it was like the Boy Scouts, but with more gymnastics, if you like. So he was really brought up to be a model citizen of Czechoslovakia. But the founding fathers, so Masaryk and his deputy, Edvard Benesch, who was another European statesman of the sort of early half of the 20th century, they weren't naive and they knew that because Czechoslovakia was in this really strategic position, it was going to have to fight to maintain that independence. And so right from the sort of 1920s, they began work on their intelligence network because they knew that they could turn their weakness to an advantage, which was that they had a central position in the heart of Europe, which was a really great place to gather intelligence. So they actually recruited a man who's pivotal to my grandfather's story and my family's story, a man called František Moravec. So he was recruited to basically turn what was a very sort of moribund intelligence service into what in effect could be argued to be the first modern, you know, many of the modern approaches to intelligence were originally started and perfected by Moravec. So he began running agents into Germany, uh, you know, gathering agents in Germany, finding out intelligence and gathering contacts in Russia. And he built this quite important intelligence network. But part of the new country was its borderlands. So it was set up with strategic borders that could be defensible. So it needed to incorporate certain geographic features and have certain defences. But in the borderlands called the Sudetenland, there were lots of native German speakers. And so as Hitler was going through his kind of expansionist policies, a natural first step was to push to take over the German-speaking areas of Czechoslovakia, which he did. At that point, obviously, very famous Munich Agreement where Neville Chamberlain, Edouard Deladier met with Hitler and Benito Mussolini and kind of agreed, without the Czechs even present, that they would have to give up all of their strategic defences. Now, Czechoslovakia was a force to be reckoned with at that stage. So it wasn't a large country, but it had, as I say, it had this generation which had grown up to be fiercely patriotic, with a strong belief in their country's principles. They had 20 divisions ready to fight. 
and they had modern armaments produced in the Skoda Works, which was one of the most advanced engineering capabilities in what was Austro-Hungary. So they couldn't beat Germany on their own, but they were a force to be reckoned with. So the fact that they were sort of sold down the river and not allowed to fight was hugely damaging for them as a new country. Then subsequently, the Germans rolled in to take over the rest of the country in 1939. Now, very important story to cover in the book here of Frantisek Morovets. So what he did at this point was from his intelligence network, and in particular an agent called A54, who was a high-ranking member of the German military intelligence and actually a close associate of Heinrich Himmler, amongst others, he was an agent that Morovets had turned and so was hugely important. A very, very valuable intelligence information was flowing through Morovets and he was in touch with Britain and other countries with this intelligence information. So when he found out through his intelligence network that Hitler was going to overrun the rest of the country and that one of the first places he was going to stop off was Morovets's office, he had to make plans pretty sharpish to get out. So he spoke to Major Harold Gibson of British Intelligence, who arranged for a flight for him, his wife, his daughter and seven of his best agents to get them out with whatever files they could carry. Now, Morovets knew the stakes and decided that he couldn't, if his agents were having to make the sacrifice to leave their families behind, so would he. So he brought nine of his best agents and his files across to the UK to start the intelligence network and had to leave his wife and subsequently did manage to get his wife and his daughter out. But that shows the commitment and the principles that were at stake here and the value of the intelligence network that Czechoslovakia and Morovets had created. Now, at that time, in 1939, my grandfather was a young man in his early 20s. He trained as a linguist, so he spoke German, Czech and Russian, amongst other languages. And so when the Germans overran and they were looking for labourers, the fact that he spoke three languages and could be able to communicate was unfortunately a very helpful skill for him. So he found himself transplanted to Kiel, where he was put on forced labour to build a naval barracks for the Germans. It was a horrific time for him. He said he was brutalised, in his words. He was beaten with an iron bar, made to do pointless tasks when he wasn't being worked half to death on starvation rations. Well, it's an often forgotten part of the Second World War history. You know, we talk a lot about the history of slavery and slave labour, but that level of forced labour during the Second World War led to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people being killed whilst making these vast defences across Europe. Everything from the Atlantic Wall, which stretched from the north of Norway down to the French border with Spain, and even things like the Vengeance Rockets programs. All of that was built off the back of slave labour. And every account that I've heard and those I've spoken to who have either been through that or their families have recounted their stories have said it was truly horrific conditions. Yeah, it certainly was the lowest point, I think, certainly of his life to that point, but as a low point when he recollected it to me. However, he did also point out that as bad as he was treated, the Jewish prisoners were treated even worse. It's just unimaginable, isn't it, to think about the trauma that people went through. So he it then got to, I think, Christmas Eve 1939. And at this point, Edvard Benesh had returned from exile to the UK. Frantisek Morovets was in the UK uh, Jan Masaryk, the son of Thomas Masaryk, the founder of Czechoslovakia, they'd all arrived in the UK and they were trying to assert their authority. And they were making radio broadcasts to say to young, able Czechs, we need you to fight, get yourself across to the French army if you can at all. Now, my grandfather was quite close to France, really, but not easy to get across. So what he did was he left on Christmas Eve of 1939 with two Jewish inmates of the labour camp who helped him through their contacts, get across Germany 
back to Barnov. So he made it back across Germany, God knows how. Well, he said it was with the support of local Jewish families who he knew through his contacts. He found his way back to Barnov just before Christmas. Now, at this point, the Czechs hadn't been quite as compliant to the Nazi war machine as Hitler would have liked. And he had installed, as the acting Reichsprotector, infamous Nazi Reinhard Heydrich, who was the instigator of the Final Solution at the Vansi Conference, and archetypal sort of blonde hair, blue-eyed, fencing pilot Nazi. Oh yeah, you can't get more Nazi really than Heydrich, the Nazi protector. Well, and he immediately instigated what they called sort of carrot and stick policies in Czechoslovakia. So he brought in a very harsh regime, but some rewards for people who knuckled down and did their work at the Skoda Works and otherwise became good citizens of the protectorate. As part of that, though, there's been student demonstrations, very famous student demonstrations, and the universities had been closed. So my grandfather's cousin, younger cousin, who's only 19 at the time, Josef Bublik, his legal studies were curtailed and he ended up back in Barnov as well at that time. So my grandfather and his cousin decided that they were going to heed the call and they were going to go and fight for their country, for this new Czechoslovakia. So the only way they could do that was as a roundabout route where they had to leave through Slovakia. The provisions they took with them was a briefcase, a bottle of plum brandy and some sandwiches, as far as my granddad said. And they remembered to bring their winter coats. And they went through Slovakia, uh, Hungary, which was a key post where there were guides being put in place. Sorry, George, what month was this? What month did they they set off? January. In January, they set off across (laughs) Europe with some plum brandy and some sandwiches. Yeah, and it was, you know, you can look at the weather forecast, it was very snowy, apparently. I have no doubt. They found their way, as I say, through Hungary and then through the Balkans and eventually to the Lebanon, where they joined the exile army through the French Foreign Legion. So they were stationed with the French Foreign Legion. I have all of the papers, so you'll see in the book, this is all evidenced by archive material and documentation, including his papers for when he joined the Foreign Legion. So they then went, him and his cousin Josef and others, then went across the Mediterranean to Port Setia, the south of France, where they joined the French army or the exiled Czechoslovak army, but under French command and training. And it was there, a very fateful decision was made because of his language skills, that he would be trained in radio signalling. So he joined the signal school there, went through his training, and then I think it was quite late on, about May time, the Czech forces were brought up to near Paris to join the action. And at this point, the French forces were already collapsing around them. But remember, these were the sort of (laughs) self-selected... most committed of that young crop of Czech citizenry that wanted to fight for its country. So they fought very well, too well, because the French kept retreating and leaving them (laughs) nearly surrounded. So it ended up that my grandfather, they were in separate regiments, Josef and Yaroslav at that point. And my grandfather told me the story of how they had to do a forced march, basically back from Paris all the way to the south of France. Horrific scenes, Again, I said his low point was at the labour camp in Kiel. I think if not, it would have been that march back. The morale was incredibly low because they had no country to go to. If they were surrendered to the Germans, they would be shot as traitors, as traitors to the Third Reich, for which they were subjects. One of his colleagues, he told me a story, became so depressed that he just stopped and shot himself, which is something that he spoke of as a low point. But basically, they got to the south of France and there, they just as the armistice was signed, they fought, literally fought their way onto boats. They managed to get on some boats under an Egyptian flag. My grandfather got on a boat called the Road El Farouk and they travelled up through Gibraltar, actually saw the task force leaving to get to the French Navy before it fell into German hands at that point and then went up through the Irish Sea, trailed by an Italian submarine, which was 
luckily obeying their neutral flag, and found their way to Liverpool. So at this point, they were in a really desperate state. No country. Morale was very low. And the way my grandfather described it to me was it was a bit like, if you've seen the Christopher Nolan film Dunkirk, where they were greeted with cheering and sandwiches and cups of tea. Before I'd seen that film, he described the scenario, and it was a real welcome. The UK morale and positivity and welcome was a much appreciated thing at that time for them because they really were at a low ebb. They'd travelled pretty far, hadn't they, George? I'm just trying to visualise that map that you're explaining to me to move down from Czechoslovakia through the Balkans, down through Lebanon. Well, from Denmark originally, <laughs> my grandfather. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. And then all up and around, and then you end up docking in Liverpool. They'd been on a long journey, and also just the frightening pace at which the Nazis moved through France, six weeks it takes to take France. I mean, it is terrifying, a terrifying retreat for your grandfather and his cousin, who know that if they stop that march, they will be captured and they will be shot. So what befalls them when they get to Liverpool, apart from British hospitality and some cups of tea? Well, morale was low. So at this point, there was a little bit of insurrection against Benish. He was trying to reclaim his authority, of course. And at this point, there was still the Nazi-Soviet pact. So there were some more communist-leaning members of the Czech soldiers, some of whom were veterans of the Spanish Civil War. And so there was nearly an insurrection. A young Robert Maxwell was one of the instigators at the time, called Jan Hock at the time. So he initially had a bit of a test of his authority, Benesh, but he managed to overcome that. And I think the ringleaders were moved to the sort of Pioneer Corps or something away from frontline duties. And I think the Czechs then began to rebuild their morale. Now, initially they were in a tented village at Chomley Park in Cheshire, but they were then moved to more permanent barracks at Morton Paddocks and Leamington Spa. And very quickly, so all of this while, Morovets was keeping his intelligence network going. So they were feeding back information about Operation Sea Lion, all sorts of very vital sort of nourishment, and which was fueling their political ability to reclaim Czechoslovakia as an independent country. The nightmare for them was that peace would be declared with Germany and Czechoslovakia would be lost forever as part of a greater Germany. So they realised, Franciszek Morovets, as the head of intelligence, and Edvard Benesch, realised that they needed to be taking a more active part in the war. So it was exactly that time that Churchill set up the Special Operations Executive with its mission to set Europe ablaze. The Czech soldiers, you know, the parachutists, weren't actually formally part of SOE. They were allowed to retain their independence but use SOE training schools. And they were actually allowed their own codes, uniquely almost, probably because of the value of the intelligence. They were allowed to keep their own independent codes, which was probably also a recognition of that they had quite a complex set of relationships to maintain in the longer term. And they were good at what they were doing. I mean, they must have been delivering some pretty good intelligence back to the UK. Like you said, if they're talking about and they're able to get some sort of intel on Operation Sea Lion and just have some sort of glimpse at this point in the war, at when Hitler might decide to invade the UK, then Churchill's going to do everything that he can to make sure that they maintain a pretty happy working relationship. Absolutely. And that's all they had. And so they knew the value of it. And my grandfather, don't forget, was trained as a signaler. So he very quickly came to the attention of the intelligence forces who were scouting for men to be involved in these initial parachute missions to build communications, to strengthen the communications with the homeland, which would strengthen Benesh's authority and claim to be the leader and would also allow them to conduct operations on the ground. So my grandfather was one of the first six or seven 
men recruited into the intelligence network. And uh, you'll see in the book, there's his dinner invite in May 1941 for dinner with Edward Benesh at Walton Hall, which he kept until his dying day. You know, it's a sort of great source of pride for the farmer's son from Moravia to be dining with a sort of intellectual and political leader. And obviously Benesh had taken over as leader by this time. From day one, there was talk of assassinations and political assassinations. The initial target, I believe, was a man called Emmanuel Morovets, who shared the name of Franciszek Morovets, but was kind of like the Lord Hawhor of Czechoslovakia. He was a Czech who'd kind of gone native, so he, he was a, the chief target. But as it became more clear that Heydrich was the best target and the one that would have the most political impact, attention moved to him. Now, my grandfather was very quickly moved. So there was an underground radio network in Prague run by the Three Kings, they were called. So there were ex-members of the Czech military who had gone underground. And they were the ones that were directly in touch with A54. Now, at this time, they got caught mid-transmission. One of them was captured or killed, I think, and the radio was lost. So if they had no radio contact, they had nothing. So at the same time as Anthropoid, there was another mission which was sent, which was called Operation Silver A. And that was about rebuilding the communications and bringing radios to do the communications in Czechoslovakia to the UK. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 
So Operation Anthropoid was the assassination mission and Operation... Silver A. Silver A was in some ways the more important mission because it was about establishing firm communications for everything that needed to come afterwards. They were both important, but in different ways. And at this time, my grandfather was moved to a role in local intelligence in the UK to actually train radio agents because with his skills, they did kind of realise that there wasn't a huge amount of guarantee that anybody who was sent would come back. And so it proved. And so my grandfather was kept to train radio operators. So he trained a succession of radio operators that went on the missions up to about 1942. So Anthropoid, which was uh, Josef Gabchik and Jan Kubisch were sent to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich. There were various men sent on Silver A, and there were a handful of missions at that time. Now, one of those early missions was a mission called Operation Bioscope. It was about the fourth or fifth mission. And by that time, Josef, his younger cousin, had followed him into this world of espionage. And so he was recruited to be part of a three-man team to blow up a railway bridge or an electrical substation in Moravia. So all of the team were natives to Moravia and knew the local area. So he was parachuted in. I should say there's a lot of missions here. You have to get the order straight. But I think it's important to say that Silver A was successful. So Silver A went out as a mission. They managed to build contact with local resistance. They managed to get their radio up and running in a safe place. They managed to establish contact with A54. And they, all men were promoted in the field. So this was a massive success. Unfortunately, it did lead to a bit of a false idea of Moravets and the guys in the UK that this parachute business was a doddle. It was led by a man called Alfred Bartosz, and he sent very pointed messages back to the UK saying, this is a lot tougher than you might think it is. We've been very lucky here. Don't send any more agents because we won't be able to shelter them or look after them. But the political imperative to do everything that was necessary for Czechoslovakia was so big that those warnings were ignored. So Anthropoid dropped at the same time as Silver A was obviously a success, a very famous story. Absolutely. One of the greatest successes of those kind of missions in terms of the fact that it assassinated Heydrich. Yeah, so Gabchik and Kubish were successful in their mission. But just before that, Operation Bioscope was landed. It was more typical of the sort of fate of those missions at the time. So what happened was the men were dropped. Um, they were unable initially to recover their equipment because it wasn't possible to move it across country from their dropping zone. So what happened was Josef Bublik and Jan Hruby, who were the two of the men in the group, went ahead to Moravia to scope out the locations and Bohuslav Kuba, who was the leader, went to the network in Prague where the Hydric assassins and the Silver Amen and others were linked to ask for some help to get the equipment, to recover the equipment. Now, unfortunately, he was caught trying to recover the equipment and killed by the Gestapo. So all of their equipment was lost. The mission was a failure. And Joseph Bublik and Hruby then went into the network of safe houses run by the women of the Czech Red Cross in and around Prague. So... At the time that Heydrich was assassinated, Josef was running from house to house, sleeping with his gun, scouting out exits, knowing that at any time there could be a knock on the door and they could be caught. And of course, after Heydrich was shot, uh, subsequently died of his injury, he wasn't shot, it was a grenade. Famously, Gabchik's gun jammed and then Kubish flung a hand grenade, the shrapnel trapped in his spleen and he died of, in agony several weeks later of blood poisoning but of course then we saw the most horrific of nazi reprisals this was always the problem george of aiming at high profile nazis if you focus on members who had perhaps turned and become nazi sympathizers then there was usually less of a reprisal or there was a reprisal by those who had turned against 
the resistance and not so much by the Nazis, but you strike at a high-profile Nazi, and I mean, well, we know some of the most famous reprisals in history here against the resistance networks in France, in Denmark, and by the sounds of it, in Czechoslovakia as well. Yeah, I mean, but they knew what they were doing. That's the great question. That's the great $64,000 question, isn't it? But if you look at it from a Czechoslovak point of view, this was about preventing all future generations of their country from becoming slaves. That was the stake. So, yeah, it's a horrible mental arithmetic to do, but hindsight is a wonderful thing. And they knew that the repercussions would be hard, but they also knew that, you know, I was think, what do you do with a bully? Well, one answer is you give them a whack on the nose. <laughs> And at least they'll think about it before they do it again. <laughs> well, it sends a message and it shows that even the most high-profile Nazis are vulnerable at this time. Yeah. I mean, the repercussions were horrific. You know, martial law, thousands shot. And as was, of course, typical, Jewish people were blamed first and killed in the largest numbers. But then very famously, Hitler wanted to make an example. And so he picked the village of Lidice, which had no proven link with the assassinations all of the men were killed, a lot of the women were killed and the mothers taken away from their children. Many of the children were killed. Some of the children were kept for Germanization, whatever that means, and moved in with new families. And then the whole village was bulldozed. And the idea was it was obliterated from existence. Of course, that wasn't the case because we're still talking about it today. And I think many towns, there's much been done to remember that village and that atrocity. But slightly less known, there was actually another town which suffered the same fate called Lizaki. And that was linked in that it was the town which was closest to where the Silver Age transmitter had been put in a quarry. And so it was exactly the same fate, but a smaller village, about 50 people were killed. And the radio operator, so one of the last messages that came back through the radio was from a man called Jimmy Potacek, who'd been trained by my grandfather. The message was, Lazaki is levelled, I am the only one left. And um, so I get a bit emotional talking about some of these things, particularly with it being so close to the family. So in terms of the communications network, the radio then went dead. And so, obviously, there were massive reprisals post the Hydric assassination. Gabchik, Kubish, the assassins, Apalka and Valchik. Uh, Apalka was the leader in Operation Outdistance, which was another failed mission, which had been to direct bombers to the Skoda Works as the chief armaments factory, but that failed. Valchik was one of Silver A. They had helped Gabchik and Kubish undertake the assassination. Another man called Yaroslav Svark had come into the country recently to look at conducting the assassination of the original target, Emmanuel Morovets. So that was his mission. And then along with those five men were two more, uh, Josef Bublik and Jan Hruby of Bioscope. So the seven men found themselves famously in the church of St. Cyril and Methodius, church crypt, witnessing all of this horrific action, debating whether they should hand themselves in as the net tightened. And then I think it was in June, Josef Publik was asleep in the choir loft of the church with Josef Gabchik and Apalka, who was the sort of commanding officer. Apalka was the ranking officer, so he was the kind of de facto leader. And two of the agents who had been dropped, who had been separated, a man called Carol Cherder and a young man called Willem Gerick, again, a pupil of my grandfather's, who he had recommended was unfit for duty in on parachute missions. And so... I think the guilt of that sat quite heavily with them, but they gave up the location. 800 SS troops came to get them. The first battle was the battle for the choir loft. And as I say, my grandfather's cousin, Gabchik and Apalka, fought for several hours to their last bullets and then shot themselves in their heads. And then the four men in the crypt, the four remaining men, so that would have been Kubish, Svark, Kruby and Valchik, they then fought on 
and shot themselves. Again, it's a very famous story for the um, film Anthropoid, Operation Daybreak, several films of that. So this is how I came to know when I was growing up. My grandfather never spoke about any of this, but that story became so famous and I managed to get an inkling of the involvement of my grandfather and his cousin, who he, you know, it was mentioned to me that his cousin had died and it was something that was a very much a family story from the past. That was really my end to this story and what piqued my interest to do research and find out exactly what the backdrop was. And of course, yes, not just his cousin, but so many of his friends and those who he'd helped train. His whole peer group, yeah. His, it was only really as I researched it, I realised how central his role was to the whole story. It wasn't peripheral, it was direct. And it then made much more sense why he had spoken so little about it, <laughs> because these were painful memories and real people. Not, You know, this story's been a little bit caricatured and... You know, I think you can even get anthropoid comic books now, which just the mind boggles. You know, for me, the more I found about this, the more I realised it's, it's a real human story of real people in tragic circumstances. You know, I mean, it all comes back to the geography again. You know, Czechoslovakia is right on that sort of knife edge between East and West, a delicate balancing act. And if things spin out of control, all hell can break loose. And that's exactly what happened. And they were right at the focal point of that. Well, in a position that the Czech Republic still holds today, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. Those dynamics are still there. Geography doesn't change. <laughs> no. But I've got to ask, George, before you move on with that bit of the story, I mean, it obviously was incredibly difficult for your grandfather, for Yaroslav, to hear those messages coming back through as well from his radio operators. You know, And as these people are picked off one by one, is it at this point that this is an end of the Czechoslovakian intelligence networks? So... My grandfather had gradually moved from his training duties to work at something called the VRU, which is basically the military intelligence radio headquarters. So it was based in a farmer's field in Leighton Buzzard. So it's fairly close to Bletchley, where they got a lot of their kit. And they actually had teleprinter links, sort of the email of its day. They were directly connected to Bletchley. So there, there was a sort of core of about 12 to 15 men who were responsible 24-7 for maintaining radio contact with all of the agents and the embassies across Europe where they had contacts. And it was a very demanding, tense, stressful job. I mean, they had to send them away for rehabilitation at times because they were just cracking under the pressure. So, I mean, my grandfather, I remember him demonstrating to me how he Morse code. It was like, his, you know, it was another language to him he, that he spoke fluently. And they could almost discern from accounts of one of his colleagues, a man called Modrak, they had almost a telepathic connection with what was happening on the ground. You know, they could sense when a radio operator was speeding up because they knew that they were going to get uncovered by the Gestapo detectors. You know, when the radio broadcast was suddenly cut, it meant something. You know, there were little messages just dropped in a few characters as a kind of personal acknowledgement to the radio operator. So they were intimately connected with this right through the war. And although there was also compartmentalisation, so they may not have formally known who they were communicating with, but they were so close that they couldn't have helped it. And one of the accounts that I got subsequently, and I did some research, was there was a from a man called Roy Tink, who was a teleprinter engineer from Bletchley, who was sent out to fix things to the VRU from time to time. One of his comments was that he remembers seeing one of the men in floods of tears at news that one of his colleagues had been killed in Bohemia. So I don't know which colleague or which death, because there were plenty. But that was an indication of the reality of it for them. So... For them, the mission went on, intelligence was still key, and they had to recover the intelligence links and communications. So they started to send more missions. So initially, there was an Operation Antimony that was sent. They didn't yet know that, you know, they had had a message from Potrzeczek before the radio went silent of Silver A. They weren't sure what was left of the intelligence network, so they dropped a team in 
to try and uncover that quite soon afterwards. That was unsuccessful. All of the men were caught by the Gestapo. All of them took their cyanide tablets and died. One of the men, Lubomir Jasinek, who was the radio operator again, he swallowed his tablet whole. He didn't have a chance to bite it. So they tried to pump his stomach and his final minutes were spent wandering around a doctor's waiting room after they'd been unsuccessful smoking a cigarette and admiring the paintings before he dropped dead. So there's some fascinating stories of these different missions, which are not as famous as the story of, of Anthropoid. But basically, as the war moved on, the political dynamic changed and the purpose of the missions changed. So as you get into sort of 44, everyone knows that the, you know, with the Americans now in the war and, and Russia fighting heavily, everyone knows it's a matter of when, not if. And so they are then seriously being put under pressure to drop parachute teams to help with the uprisings so that they can take the country back. Now, there was a, a flurry of missions to support the Slovak uprising in '44, which were quite instructive, much like Warsaw Uprising, where they were encouraged to send people and start uprisings, but Russia held back their forces, and that was a very difficult time. So my grandfather, in terms of parachute missions and the real story of Operation Force Square, is then full circle right to the end of the war in April 1945. So there was this emerging dynamic between Russia and America percentages agreement with Churchill where there were certain countries which were deemed to be within the Russian sphere of influence. Czechoslovakia was very much deemed to be in the Soviet sphere of influence but Benesh knew that there couldn't be an independent democratic Czechoslovakia without serious American engagement and involvement and so there was a flurry of missions, highly secretive missions in 1945, all under the local command of a man called Jaromir Nechensky who led Operation Platinum. And basically, the whole strategy was to try and get the local forces to rise up to give the Americans an excuse to come in. Because what Benesh wanted was he wanted American forces in Prague so that he could negotiate their strategic withdrawal and the withdrawal of the Red Army, which was approaching from Slovakia. And so he would then be left in control at the seat of government. That's what he wanted. But the political agreements that had been made were that the Americans should hold fast at the border and that Russia should liberate Czechoslovakia. So highly difficult situation because they knew that if Russia was in complete charge, then Czechoslovakia would be, in effect, under communist domination. So I've got a question then. To what extent were these missions that were continuing to happen to be dropped in to Czechoslovakia? To what extent were they sanctioned by the SOE, by Churchill? I mean, how were these how were these missions able to take place? This is almost undermining the entire political situation. Yeah, no, that is the story of Foursquare. So you've hit the nail on the head there. So much as it was quite easy or relatively easy to uncover some of the early stories, which were in some ways less politically controversial, trying to get to grips of what happened at the back end of the war has proved much more difficult. So the main quest of the book was to try and understand really a conundrum, which was for me that when I looked into the official files and particularly the SOE files in things like the Public Records Office, it was clear that Operation Foursquare, my grandfather's mission, which was in May of 1945, was called off at the last moment and didn't happen. And yet he told me at the end of his life that it did happen and that its purpose was to assassinate German section leaders to instigate the Pilsen uprising, which incidentally fits exactly with the timing and location of his drop. So in trying to unpick that conundrum, where I got to was that America itself was conflicted. You know, the political entities have got different levels that they work at. And so I believe that the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA, 
was working in concert with the UK-based Czechoslovak intelligence forces. At this point, Edward Benesh was embedded with the Red Army coming in from Slovakia. So he desperately wanted the American forces to come in, but he was in no position to actively do anything to encourage that himself. So his sort of organisation in the UK was working with the OSS with some knowledge of the SOE probably, but not with the wider British intelligence services in effect to undertake this final flurry of missions. So this is incredible because this means that your grandfather, who to this point has spent the majority of the war back in England training radio operators to be sent out to Czechoslovakia to help the resistance and help with uprisings and so on and so forth, is now at a point at the end of the war where he himself is being sent out as a parachutist on these missions. I've got to ask, is this because there's no one left? Or is this because he wants to go out there and he wants to have his role and fulfil his mission and play his role on the front lines to try and make sure that you can rebuild that country that was, like you said at the beginning, so intellectually and politically sophisticated and independent and to try and make sure it can rise once again? Yeah, it was certainly a bit of both. I mean, I think... He, you know, don't forget, he was one of the original agents that was picked and he was certainly one of the best radio operators. So in effect, those missions were also about transplanting that intelligence network back into Czechoslovakia. You know, there was no use for them being in the UK anymore. So in some ways, it saved on a plane ticket. So he was actually the leader of his mission, Operation Foursquare. There were a succession of missions. As I say, they were all under the command of a man called Jeremy Nachansky, who ended up being, in effect, the leader of the Prague Uprising. I also believe my grandfather... If I believe my grandfather's story, which he told me towards the end of his life, he was parachuted into Pilsen. Their mission was a success, he said, which means they assassinated German section leaders. The American forces came into Pilsen, but there they were held. And so they weren't allowed to go on to Pilsen. But my grandfather went on to Pilsen to fight with Nachansky and others in the Prague uprising. He then made his way back to France initially, where he was supposed to be, according to the official record. I've actually got some nice pictures of him posing with his team with smirks on their faces in front of the Eiffel Tower, just to prove they were there. And then they made their way back to England. So it is interesting because there are various accounts that corroborate that story. One of the interesting things I found as I did my research was he had retained a copy of his mission report to his dying day. But the mission report confirms that the mission didn't go ahead. And it was very clear to me that he'd kept this as his alibi to prove that the mission didn't happen when in fact it did. There's more to the story. So in the initial days of the war, there was attempts to form a democratic Czechoslovakia and to find common cause with the the communists who were obviously under the influence of the Soviet Union. My grandfather initially worked in the foreign office, worked for Jan Masaryk, who was the foreign minister. But I suspect that the communists and others started to get a wind of what he had done in the war. So he was quite quickly moved to the US-occupied area of Berlin, where he worked in the sort of forum of the United Nations on probably resettling displaced Sudetenlanders and other areas for the new state. Then when the communist coup came in 48 and the communist elements of the government took full control, he was recalled to Prague, but somebody came and tipped him off that if he was to go back to Prague, he'd be hung as a traitor. Now, soon after this, his patron, Jan Masaryk, fell to his death from the window of his flat in extremely dubious circumstances. I think most people accept that he was pushed, he wasn't thrown. 
So he was in a very, very difficult situation. He managed speaking to the US forces to, by this time, my mother had been born in Berlin and he just married my English grandmother. He got them out on a plane. And when he heard confirmation that they'd arrived back in 48, this is when the Berlin airlift was on, he then subsequently flew out himself. And that was the end of his Czech political project. He was then in exile for the rest of his life in the UK. Wow, what an incredible story and coming around all full circle with quite a sad ending for your grandfather, really, not being able to stay in that country, his home country, which he had fought so hard through his entire life to that point to try and protect and to try and liberate. But this story is fascinating. Thanks so much for bringing it to us, George, because there's that one hidden aspect, Operation Foursquare, which has so much more detail in the book, and I encourage people to go out and to buy it. But it reveals this broader history of resistance and intelligence networks and really provides us with a fascinating aspect and picture of the war. Thank you so much for bringing it to us. But tell us, where can people buy the book? Yeah, so the book's available in all all good bookshops. And it's been a labour of love. And I think, you know, as you say, it's a fascinating story, but it's my personal relationship with my grandfather. It's my journey in finding this story out over a lifetime, but certainly over the last 20 years. And it's the kind of the political backdrop and then the activities on the ground. So it's all interweaved. Certainly the views of people who've read it and reviews is that it's very readable. So I think very pleased with the book as a sort of testament to my grandfather, but also a very accessible way to find out about a very important little known piece of history that's actually, as you say, central to the world today as much as it was at the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, George. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Brilliant. Thanks, James. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.